Welcome to Great Quarter, guys. I'm Seth Holm. I'm your host. I'm a research analyst here at Freight Waves in the Freight Intel Group. We are the proprietary research desk here at Freight Waves. We do long-form research on everything transportation and logistics. Uh, this podcast is going to be a show about the intersection of transportation, finance, and investing. Today, I have with me Kevin Hill, who's my co-host. How are you doing, Kevin? I'm doing great, Seth. Good to be here. Uh, second episode. Um, so, Kevin, let's let's get it kicked off here. Um, uh, this morning, we did the DHL Supply Chain Pricing Power Index. Uh, why don't we talk about what we saw today? We saw what, what we saw was a fall in load volumes over the last week or so. So we crossed over 2019, crossed over 2018 load volumes on July 20th and have been above that bar until yesterday. And today we're down, a, I think, around 3% from 2018 levels. So we're, we're bottoming them out a little bit. And we are also, I think, a little over 5% below the 60-day moving average as well. So it shows a weakness or a continued week in load volumes over the last uh, couple of weeks. And it's, uh, it's not good for either shippers or carriers, really. Right. So we kind of talked about this last week. Uh, the, the, the picture going into peak season just continues to deteriorate and be a little bit disappointing, right? It does. This is peak season, and it's, it's flat to a little bit low now. Right. Uh, which uh, gives uh, a little bit of concern going into Q1 of 2020 into a weak market, which is traditionally the, the quarter with the, the least amount of volume. So it's uh, it could get a little bloody out there. Right. And I, I think we saw um, two executives, I think, from uh, Hub Group uh, and then also Schneider, CEO, basically, they both said, we're not going to have a peak. That is right. That's what they're saying on the earnings calls. Uh, it's, it's just a weak market. 2019's been a, a pretty, pretty weak market. We started out with in a freight recession for at least the first two quarters. The third quarter saw a rebound. We closed out the third quarter seven percent above 2018 volumes, mm-hmm. and uh, the fourth quarter hasn't really started off with a bang yet. Well, we'll see what happens there. Uh, on the positive side, though, we did have some good economic uh, stuff this week. We might have it. We just might have a trade deal on our hands. Phase one. What do you think? Phase one. Uh, I will believe it when I see it. Uh, we, we've had a couple, couple shadow punches on on whether a trade deal will get signed or not. So I'm hoping we do. Uh, but but there's still a little bit of room to run until that is finalized. Right. Okay. Well, listen up. We've got a great show for you guys today. We have a guest here. We have. Uh, Mike uh, Bowden-Distel. Did I say that right? That's right. Bowden-Distel. Mike, welcome in. You're our second guest. Uh, Mike's background. So um, he is our rail and intermodal market expert here at Freight Waves. He spent a long time on the sell side uh, at Stiefel Nicholas, and he was an II, uh, institutional investor, top-ranked analyst. This guy probably knows more about rail and intermodal than, you know, anyone else out there in the country. So uh, Mike, you did a deep dive. So at Freight Waves, uh, I'm a mar- we're, all three of us are market experts. Every weekend, uh, look out on your inbox on Saturday. Uh, we do a deep dive, which is sort of like a four to five page topical uh, note on whatever you know interests us or whatever's going on in transportation. And Mike did one on rail in the intermodal space. So Mike, uh, why don't you give us um, you know your your main takeaways and an overview? Sure. Um, so it was really a follow-on to what uh, Freight Waves contributor Jim Blaze, uh, you know, said previously, which you know he made a big deal about how 
the freight um, traffic uh, on the railroads is in a is in a recession that we basically have a railroad you know recession and sort of took that and you know kind of ran with it and said well really if we're calling it a railroad recession we sort of have to caveat that by saying it's really a, a traffic recession or a volume recession because the rails in, in so many ways are you're doing phenomenally well I mean they've um, you know outperformed the the market this year, as they have had have done, you know, most years out of the past ten or fifteen, their um, you know margins are expanding. I mean, the the average margin improvement from those U.S. rails is about 100 basis points. So, so there was really a lot of concern going into the third quarter reporting season that the rails just would would um, trip over the the fact that the volumes had had declined. Of course, a lot of the the sell side analysts were were cutting estimates because you can see those volumes every every quarter. Those volumes got progressively worse as the third quarter, you know, went on. And um, you know, the rails were able to make up for that with you know various things like um, you know headcount reductions and, and the headcounts have fallen faster than 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 volumes have fallen. Um, you know, they're turning the assets quicker. The the, the trains are moving faster. Their their the dwell time is is down. Um, they're able to park some of the the, the older, less efficient, um, you know, uh, locomotives and, and and less efficient less efficient assets, and so they're really doing a lot with with cost um, with cost improvement to to sort of more than more than make up for that. And so I say, well, you know, if you're a railroad in, investor, all all things are are, are pretty uh, pretty great right now. I mean, you're, you're happy with the returns and. You know they're being rewarded with that, not just with the the, the strong price on the absolute basis, but but relative to earnings as, as as well. I mean the stocks are trading between, you know, seventeen and twenty times forward earnings, which is is well above the the long term um, you know average. So the you know street really has a lot of confidence that, in them. And then I also you know go on to say, well, sort of what what's the the outlook going forward? Uh, you know for the rails, which you know really in two broad buckets, one of two things is going to happen. Either, you know, volumes are going to continue to deteriorate and the you know, companies are going to continue to try to cut costs to, to, to match that, or we're going to get a, get a rebound in, in, in volume. And depending on how sharp the rebound is, you know, that could be, you know, great news or it could cause some problems also. I mean, we'll, we'll see if the rails, you know, are able to handle an eventual, you know, rebound in, in, in the rail traffic. That was something that Canadian National struggled with about a year and a half ago. Can you touch on that a little bit more? So I thought that was really interesting. You kind of uh, spoke to the fact that maybe if we do get a volume on the cost side, things may not be as great as they have been with weak volumes. What What do you mean by that? So what I, what I mean by that really is is the the rails have um, reduced staffing levels, you know, pretty dramatically. Um, like Union Pacific, for instance, is is down about thirteen to fifteen percent in, in in staffing levels. They've also cut you know capital expenditures. Um, and, and so I really think there's there's less sort of redundancy maybe in the network than than, than you typically would would have. And if, if, if there's a big surge in volume, I mean, you, you may not have, you know, the right crews in the right place to, to handle to handle that surge. I mean, sort of you know, think about think back, uh, you know, a year ago when you had some of the flooding in the Midwest, you know, there were you know delays and, and, and so forth. Or just one recent example up in up in Canada was the Canadian National Railway struggled to get grain volumes, you know, to the port of Vancouver. Those those grains get exported out of out of Vancouver. And it was really got to be kind of a national embarrassment in Canada. And, and they ended up, you know, getting rid of their their CEO over that, um, you know, before installing the the, the new AJ Ruiz that uh, now who is the former uh, chief commercial officer. Um, you know, so you know, I think the the rails could run into some of those issues because they've they've scaled back both in terms of expense 
employees' um, and expenses and also their, their capital budgets have been trimmed too. Some of the, the rails have come in, you know, below what what they're, they're they were budgeting earlier in the year. Okay, so how do you think investors would respond to that? They've become accustomed to the you know every quarter and every year through PSR, uh, you know, the operating rates coming down and down. Do you think they'd be pleased with that? With a you know uh, ramping volumes, be not as much improvement on the cost side, or how do you? You know, it, it's it seems like the street is hyper focused on OR, and I and I think it, it sort of depends on, on where it all shakes out with the operating ratio, with with the with the margin. Um, that seems to be the the, the greatest area of focus. Um, it's still a lot of questions from analysts, as, you know, for to, to Norfolk Southern, for instance, is you know why can't you be more like you know CSX on the on the operating ratio line? So I you know I, I think if it, it sort of depends on if they can uh, you know manage that you know change in volume uh, you know with with costs, how the costs you know scale up. Uh, scale up with the volume. So I think that's the thing that they're, that they're is, is can they, their, their resources, you know, more efficiently and, um, you know, can the, the rails that aren't at a 60, you know, OR, you know, get below a, a 60 OR and, and sort of it, the, the, is there continued improvement in the market? Do you think um, on, on the OR piece, if, if there is a surge in volume, do you think that will, uh, on, on the upside, do you think that will just basically mess up this OR reduction? Do you think the ORs, if there's a surge in load volumes, do you think OR will explode higher? Well, I, I mean, it should, it should help the ORs continue to go down further. I mean, that's, I mean, that's sort of the amazing thing is, is when the, 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 the volumes were down, you know, people were expecting, okay, that's really going to, you know, trip them up and they aren't going to have that OR Im- improvement. Um, but, you know, really, I mean, it's a fixed cost network. So more volume, you know, unless they completely trip over themselves, that should cause the OR to improve, even even more so, um, you know, it, it's it's almost seems like the, the the rails can sort of do no wrong on on the margin, you know, side, which is is, is why I think you're seeing the valuations you're seeing. Yeah. What about the intermodal piece, um, Mike? You cover that as well. Uh, that has a lot of links to the trucking world. They compete. What do you you know? What are your sort of main takeaways? Yeah, I would uh, reiterate a lot of what you just said, Kevin. With um, with the peak season. I mean, you look at the sonar data and, you know, we get that um, the traffic, you know, the, the traffic data and also the intermodal uh, um, rates by lane, um, you know, on basically a real time basis. And, and what you've seen is the, the uh, on, you know, right now versus a month ago, the rates are higher, but really that's sort of some seasonal improvement. I mean, I wouldn't call it a, a, a peak. I mean, in one of the last daily watches, I call it sort of a sort of a dirt mound. It's sort of a, you know, quasi you know, quasi peak, but not really a peak. Um, you know, Hub Group, I thought, discussed that pretty well when they when they said, okay, this is sort of a, a muted peak or, you know, not not really one. So you've, you've seen some improvement in certain areas of the West Coast. But then when you look at the, you know, custom, you know, the imports and the TEUs coming in on, on Los Angeles, Long Beach, those have already come down um, seasonally. So it, it, se- it seems to, to reason that the, the um, you know, rates and, and, and volumes for intermodal are going to tail off here, um, you know, pretty quickly, um, you know, coming out of the West. And, and then you've also seen some, I think, some market share shift from the West Coast ports to the to the East Coast, uh, you know, ports. Um, with- Do you think on on the, uh, the decline in load volumes on rail or intermodal, do you think that's a bit of competition with the low rates in trucking? Yeah, I think that's true, too. I, I mean, that was one thing that's been that's been unusual is um and that was something that hub group mentioned as well is, is that is that there's just you know the 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 truckers in order to keep those assets you know turned they're they're willing to take you know lower rates and even on lanes that you would think would be traditionally intermodal lanes like la to dallas is, is kind of in an unusual you know situation where that's 1500 miles you would think that wouldn't be competitive with truck that would take the truck 
Um, but but there you're seeing you know rates that that, that sort of mirror you know each other. So um, it seems like desperation on the, on the part of part of truckers. So I think that's it's it's an issue. I mean it's always you know it tends to be more competitive in the east because that's something one or two days and it's a bigger you know difference in um, in, in terms of just the, the competitiveness there. But but yeah. How about on the individual company side? You used to cover a lot of companies. Not picking stocks here, but do you see any railroads or intermodal companies? Given this backdrop, right, the status quo right now, we've got negative volumes. They seem to have some pricing power, at least on the rail side. They're cutting expenses and headcounts, and they're still, you know, I think in your, it's not a recession because they're still growing earnings from buybacks uh, and cost cuts. Um, is there any particular company or sort of theme that you're, that you're watching out that leaves uh, somebody, you know, positioned uh, superiorly? Yeah, I think on the rail side, um, you know, one thing that stands out to me is the Canadian rails um, are finding a way to grow volume. And that's something that the, the U.S. rails are, are not doing. I mean, it's, it's not really seems like it's, it doesn't seem like it's a big focus for the U.S. rails. I mean, for the, for the Canadian rails, it seems like, OK, they're past this, you know, operating you know, ratio improvement. How low can we go on the operating ratio? And it's about you know, finding you know, creative ways to grow the volume, whether it's expanding, you know, the you know partnering with the the ports to to expand you know the, the the port infrastructure you know in and out of say Prince Rupert and the you know Canadian national side or you know some of these new uh, you know potash mines for Canadian Pacific so um, you know I like the the fact that you know with the the Canadian rails they have you know fluid networks currently and like Canadian Pacific has a lot of um, you know excess you know capacity as well running a very fluid network and they're finding ways to grow to grow the volume so that's one that you know it almost seems like there's there's less you know risk because they're not just marching down the OR and do you, you run into a uh, a situation where you you know stumble with service or stumble with regulations or, or you know those type of things. So going back to the, the OR, how low do you think? It, I mean, what is the what's the bottom level of OR? So yeah, we did this last week with JP Hampstead who came on, and he's he's a bull on the ORs. He buys into I think her name is Allison Landry. She credits Swiss, and she thinks that you know low fifties ORs are are in the cards. To wrap up our conversation here, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I would say maybe low to mid fifties. I mean, I, it, it seems like at some point the rails will, you know, sort of get to a level where, okay, this is sort of what a steady state type of operating ratio would be. Sort of recognizing that, you know, they can't. Are they going to be able to price ahead of inflation forever? I mean, in a lot of cases, the the, the shippers have no choice other than to use a rail, or they can one or, or two rails, and they sort of act as a duopoly. But you also have to look at sort of what's happening in you know, Washington, D.C., where they're expanding the Surface Transportation Board. And one of the main objectives is you know, you know, not only taking the, the, the board to a larger number of members, but also streamlining the process for contesting a rate in places where the, um, the rails are abusing you know, their, their, their market position. And, um, you know, currently, I mean, it's, it's really that, that process has, has just been cumbersome and it's been hard for anyone to you know, successfully contest those rates. Um, but they're trying to make it more streamlined. So even a, a smaller you know, shipper in a short amount of time can do that. So I think, you know, over time, that can sort of erode just the, the, the pure pricing, you know, component of operating ratio improvement, which is the you know, fastest, easiest way to improve ORs just to raise price on customers that don't have a choice. Good stuff. Thank you, Mike. Great. Thank you. So on to the next topic. Yeah. So, Kevin, um, let's get into it. We ran over on time last week to discuss sort of the elephant in the Amazon entering the logistics. Um, you know, what what do you think are the broad implications, Kevin, of Amazon increasingly and how big do you think their presence? That's a really good question. And it's, it's one that it's hard to predict. I, I know that everything right now is all about 
uh, carrier density, density with their deliveries, with their own product. Now, can they master that and spin it off kind of like an AWS into uh, basically a for hire or commercial logistics service? I, I think if they figure it out, they will. I, I know that's really a, a non-answer in, in a lot of ways, but it's, it's very hard to master, especially on a large scale. So I don't, I'm not sure if, if someone like Amazon can really master it and become a force in logistics. So, yeah, you, we, we're going to get there to ALS is what uh, Amazon Logistics Services. That's what everybody wants to know. Are, is there, are they going to build up all this excess capacity? They're spending $40 billion this year, Kevin, on shipping. That's an unbelievable number. They guided for $800 million in Q3. They're, they're getting $5 and under products to you in one day. They're going to spend a billion and a half on this and extending their lead. You know, they're building out their own trucks, their own planes. They're doing an outsourced uh, delivery van network uh, with people. You know, are they going to pull that pivot that they did where you saw back in 2006, Amazon had all this excess capacity on their servers because retail is a seasonal business, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and they had these problems where their website would get flooded around, you know, the holidays and they, so they needed all this extra server space and they began to rent it out. And all of a sudden it's a $26 billion business and a trillion dollar TAM with, you know, 30% operating, you know, it, they've, they've already started. Let's, let's talk about where are they now? So, so they're having some issues with one day shipping, I think. Am I right? I, I think I'm right about. It's expensive. It's expensive, And the right? CFO talked about on the call how it, it's more expensive and harder than anticipated, but they're used to that. I mean, they're Amazon. They figure out how to, to get around the yeah, and AWS, uh, it makes a, it's a great narrative, makes perfect sense, but it's very highly scalable servers, right? AWS is very highly scalable, and transportation and logistics isn't anywhere nearly as scalable as AWS. Right. So they might hit a, hit, a, hit a rough spot with that. Uh, but I think they, they need to really figure out the, the one-day shipping and then there are other plans for under $5 free service. So I think they're really focused internally right now. Maybe three to five years, they have it figured out, and they can start competing with maybe FedExes and, and UPSs, uh, some LTL. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think on the full truckload side, I, I think they're, they're further away. Right. Well, I mean, the incentive is there, though, right? A lot of people have talked about uh, AWS aside. Amazon has had an issue with profitability. Well, when you spend $40 billion on shipping, most of that is transportation. Uh, now, I'm not under the illusion that anyone is, uh, as FedEx would kind of attest to, they're probably not making a lot of margin on deals, but you, you do shift that cost in-house and maybe turn it into a profit center. This could be a very powerful story. Now, I know Craig kind of, Fuller kind of talked about this on his podcast. I think they are kind of tiptoeing around wanting to be, uh, you know, a giant in logistics for good reasons, because they've been in the meat. Um, but, um, you know, the question is, if they continue to grow and they continue to take things in-house, I think they have like something like 70 of their own planes now. Um, you know, they're getting their own uh, power units and trucks. They've got their own brokerage division. Uh, when, whenever uh, a rumor gets out there that they've entered uh, the market, either the, the freight market or the broker, these stocks sell off like crazy. So, I mean, this is a legitimate story. 
It is a legitimate story. I, I will give you that. It's a legitimate story, but I don't think it's, it has the cash cow power of uh, uh, AWS. Yeah. So they, they might be able to do it, but I, will it really change their business, add a lot to their bottom line? I, I'm not so sure about. And that's the reason why I think it's, it's more in the distance than, than others, others believe. I think it's three, five years once they have it mastered on their own, uh, if they ever do. And that's a big question mark. If you really ever master it, they could uh, become a force in, in logistics. Yeah, and, and as we talk about every day, I mean, mastering transportation is just a lot messier. It's the physical, real world with humans, and humans make mistakes. And that's a lot harder than just, uh, you know, not to say that uh, the cloud is easy, but, re- you know, renting out excess server space at a high incremental margin, that's a lot easier, you know, task. Yeah, when we were just talking about Mike, uh, or to Mike, uh, about ORs and rel ORs and how low they can go, uh, if you look at more of uh, certainly trucking, it's much higher ORs on that, uh, as well as 3PL and brokerage. You know, you're looking at about maybe 75 OR on, on net revenue. So it's, it's on, on the cash side, on, on the cash flow side, I, I don't think it's as attractive as, as other things they might do. So eventually they might get there, but I don't think they're, they're, they're really planning on it. But it is, it is a big market, though. It is a huge market. It, it is a huge market, but it's a very difficult market. There's only, there's only a couple markets in the world that you can throw out that $1 TAM number, and this is one of them. Oh, it is. This is definitely $1, mil, or $1 trillion TAM. It's, uh, it's really, if you do worldwide, it's, it's much larger than that. So they already have a freight forwarding business. Uh, NVOCC that that they operate and uh, they they might be able to roll it all up together, but it's it's a, a brutal market, the transportation market, you know, uh, low margin, difficult. So, do they really want to throw that much resources into dominating? I think they're just kind of sticking their toe in the water and testing it out and learning mm-hmm. as they go along. But on that, you know, I used to cover this stock back in the day. I mean, you look at Amazon Prime, right? There's sort of one other interesting. Um, on the one hand, I think you could make an art that's wildly bold. Amazon Prime has about 100 million members. Uh, they are the only company in uh, U.S. retail that can get you things. It's scary. They can get you most you know, hundreds of thousands of you inside of a day. Um, you know, they're, And then when I look at this number, this is one number that always sticks out to me. So the average Prime member spends $1,400 a year uh, on, uh, on Amazon, okay? That's $26 a week. When I look at that, I'm like, Kevin, I hate to tell you, that number could go a lot higher. I it, mean, and, yeah. and it's pretty, $26 a week, I could see people spending with this one-day shipping that's completely free, I could easily make an argument that this could double. The, and then their transportation ambitions, whether they want to pursue them or not, they're going to they're gonna be moving millions of items. I think in Manhattan, every single day, they move millions of items. So. And I probably spend more than $26 a week on Amazon Prime. I, I don't like going to the store. I don't like getting in my car and sitting in traffic. So I order a lot of stuff, one-day shipping, two-day shipping. It usually doesn't really matter to me. So I totally agreement with you on that. It could go a lot higher. Uh, so the, there's some people out there who are saying that the, they've peaked. I know. So that's uh, to wrap up this that's the interesting thing. So a guy, uh, an editor, is escaping me, wrote an article that made a lot of press. And the title of on past its prime. And what he basically showed was that the frequency of people who were ordering that was twice or more a month and the number of, you know, the churn was ticking up 
and that people were increasingly shopping at Walmart and they prefer shopping or at Walmart. And the overall tone of the article was basically their dominance is slipping and others are catching up. And, um, you know, their play, once that happens, when all this comes to a head, is basically they're going to have to selectively increase prices where they can and where their algorithms and their bots can figure out that they can pull this off in order to pull those growth levers to offset the slowing growth of the prime members. And I have a question for you, since, since you covered the stock in a, a previous life, right. is uh, wh- what's the difference between margin levels between their own products or, or maybe not their own products, but things that they actually sell versus the resale? Yeah, so two different businesses. Um, you know, private label uh, always have the best margin. And so what one thing that Amazon has been doing a lot of is they figure out so S stock keeping units, SKUs, right? They're always keeping an eye on what's selling like wildfire. And if it's something that's easy to mass produce at a low cost, uh, a good example is batteries or diapers or something like that. High margins, and it's easy to mass produce at a low cost. What they'll do is they'll enter uh, through private label. Like, uh, I don't know about you, but I'll go on there and you can buy, you know, 50 Amazon Basics uh, batteries and they'll be at your house and you'll never need them. It's very cheap. And so they do that. Those, those are going to be your best margins. Now, they have two other, uh, they have two main businesses. They've got the, the 1P, that's the first party side. Um, that's where they actually take inventory risks. They buy things, you know, from, uh, from wholesalers and then sell them, mark them up and sell them. But then they also have their third party business, which is basically the fulfillment side. Amazon, uh, they run, you know, your online store and do all the fulfillment and shipping uh, warehouse uh, network. Yeah, third-party uh, sellers, right? All that, which that, that's the business that competes with Shopify. And so um, though that business is more like a 15, uh, generally I think it's like a 15% take rate they sell. Uh, uh, on the sales portion of it, how much of it is that third-party sellers? And which part of it is uh, is is basically Amazon taking the inventory risk? Actually, Yeah, I think, I think it's actually products. crossed over. Uh, don't quote me here, but I, I think it, it's about 50. Okay. Um, so, so and, th- and the third-party businesses, they started out as just first-party. Mm-hmm. And that third-party business. So, so what's the risk of competing against your third-party sellers where you get 50% of your revenue? Because we know that happens. Because you came in the other day with a pair of... Uh, golf pants or, or khakis from Amazon, kind of their private label. Right. And whenever you do a search on just about anything, mm-hmm. they, you have their you know name brands where, that they're retailing, right? They have the third-party sellers, and then they're competing directly with all those with their own private label brands. Right. I mean, I, I think the obvious risk is uh, they alienate. And so Shopify, the the uh, you know the appeal of Shopify is their fulfillment, a third-party vendor. They just they run your they run the back of your website and they, they get they're they're building up this uh, which takes billions of dollars to do as you well. So yeah, there's that obvious risk that if you're selling too hot, they're going to compete with you. Or they may the other thing they may do is they may uh, the pay for placement, which Google is. So if you want they're they're essentially equivalent to slotting fees. So if you want that end cap, that Procter and Gamble end cap. To put the uh, you know the Crest toothpaste front and center, so everybody chooses that brand. It's just like that, but in a digital world where if you want to be on page one, right up there at the top. Now they're also they've been putting their own private label. I was about to say stuff up yeah, there with you, that, you so pay that. them for that end cap, and then they put their own product right there. So it, it really has to alienate both uh, large brands, the the retailing and the third party 
uh, sellers who are trying to make a living uh, using leveraging the Amazon platform. <clears throat> Going back to Shopify, I'm a huge fan of Shopify. I started I started out selling data on Shopify. It's an easy system to use. I'm a big fan. Still, you know, pay them a monthly fee to, ha to have that site up and running. And you own some stock in Shopify too, so we were both we, we both like Shopify. I do. And the other thing that uh, merchants wrote about Shopify compete Amazon compete with you. Um, and they, by the way, Amazon would argue this is one of the things in the public. To be fair to them, they would probably take the other side of this. But the other and a good thing about Amazon is that you you get to leverage that platform to get your products out to many more eyeballs than what you can at Shopify. So at Shopify, if you have a site, you're not competing against Shopify, but you have to go out and do your own online marketing. You have to bring the eyeballs to that Shopify site, which mm -hmm. is very expensive and time-consuming. Uh, in the end, if you can tr control that yourself, it's much more valuable but Amazon, that's the, the, the one uh, great advantage of being on Amazon and doing a 3PL. Yeah, it's the network effect. It's network effect. That's true. And I think Shopify, though, will increasingly. But the other, the last thing I was going to mention, uh, people, in addition to the retailers, really about Shopify is obviously they don't have billions. It allows them to compete on a level playing field, this one and two day shipping, because Shopify's, you know, funding all the CapEx and the billions of dollars mm -hmm. to build this out. And not only that, but you get to do your own packaging and your own boxing. So if you sell something as a third party on Amazon and it gets fulfilled in an Amazon warehouse, it's coming to you in that brown box with that black and blue on tape. Whereas you can present the stuff uh, where you can curate your own brand and your own customer experience and you get to keep all the data. So that's another. Uh, definitely. I'm a big fan of Shopify. Cool. All right. So um, last week, um, you know, uh, one one thing we're going to do here is, like I said, we're going to do an investing. We I used to cover consumer and tech, so I'm always like, and a lot of the, the thing that's interesting about trucking in general is especially the dry van side is basically it's just moving consumer goods. Now, there's a lot of industrial and manufacturing seasonally and that sort of thing, but I, I continue to see all sorts of angles here. So this one caught my eye last week, Grubhub last week. Um, it also ties into some of our digital, but Grubhub, their stock dropped 45% in a day uh, last week on a bad earnings report. So Grubhub has been competing in online food ordering uh, against two SoftBank-funded companies, which are Uber Eats and DoorDash. And so these companies have been burning so much cash that they're making life very difficult for Grubhub. But the one thing that was really interesting, and I'm going to tie this into freight brokerage and transportation, is uh, I don't know if I would have gone this angle when your stock's down 45% in a day and they had to have known it's going to be bad if I would have gone for the humorous angle. But their CEO wrote a very candid and 10-page uh, uh, letter that where he uh, you know, very much openly addressed the challenges facing his. And the thing that he said that was very made a lot of headlines was he said he sees customers becoming, quote, promiscuous about their online food ordering. Um, so he says that they, Grubhub is seeing, um, you know, um, diners order dinner on whatever app happens to be the cheapest at the moment. So my question for you is, do you see any similar promiscuity or any similar uh, angles with the digital freight brokers? Do you think this will be a common issue for them in terms of engendering that customer loyalty on either the shipper or the carrier side as they build out their networks? Uh, there's a lot of similarities. A lot. Uh, as a former freight broker, 
I know that there's very little loyalty or stickiness uh, between freight brokers and uh, the, their clients, right? They'll, they'll pay a little bit of premium for service and reliability until it gets to a, a, a margin that's too wide for them to bear or too wide for them to budget, usually. Uh, and at that point, they start shopping around. They start, start shopping around for a lower rate. And that's the reason why you have a lot of churn in freight brokerages is uh, very much the Pareto rule where 20% of your, your shipper customers bring in 80% of your gross margins and the other 80% are uh, just basically a headache, right? right? They're a headache to deal with, but you, you make some money off of them. Uh, you get into uh, very slim margins, very difficult loads uh, just to grow your book of business. So it's the same thing. I mean, I, and I don't use uh, Grubhub or or any of the um, delivery services that much, but what difference does you know? Right. And you had some interesting thoughts. We, we, we read lots of Wall Street research uh, on the transportation space. Um, you know, I think Ravi Shanker at Morgan Stanley pointed out the fact that uh, Uber Freight, they just reported earnings. You know, they've got 50,000 carriers. Um, you know, I think C.H. Robinson maybe has 80,000. Um, you know, what are your thoughts in terms of building up on the um, how 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 big of an advantage is that to having a big? It's really not that big of an advantage. Well, it's big. It's a big advantage to have a large carrier network. Now, the the numbers that Austin Reporter I used to go in and sell freight broker services. We have twenty thousand carriers. We have thirty thousand carriers. Eighty percent, ninety percent of those carriers are one and done. I might not have talked to them for four years, but they're still in our network, quote unquote, right? So, so basically, it's probably ten percent of your carriers are reoccurring, and five percent are power carriers that you're always calling. The the, the ones that you know you get the, the same same lane, same loads. You pick up the phone, you call you call your buddy at the dispatcher. Where you call the driver and say, hey, you interested in this week in these loads? And that's a very small percent. So having a, a large network that you're actually using is very much an advantage. Just having people in your quote unquote network that's in your TMS or your database, it doesn't really provide any context to to say whether this is valuable or invaluable whatsoever. Right. And so... um Craig Fuller put out an article this week. I think the title is a great article. Uh, everyone out there should check it out. It was, a, is winter coming to freight tech? And in this, he kind of talked about, you know, his past where, uh, with a prepaid debit card company and how, um, you know, with the digital freight brokers, one of the controversial issues is, you know, you, you have this, these high CACs, that's cost of customer acquisition. And the question is, because if, if that loyalty is not there, then do you have that customer lifetime value? And that's sort of the line in the sand where he thinks it's going to separate the winners from the losers in freight tech. So you need to have not only those positive unit economics that we touched on last week, but you need to have that customer loyalty that if you're spending big up front to add these customers, they need to be around for a couple of years and still doing business with you. Definitely stickiness, lifetime value of the customer. You, you have to have that. If you don't have that uh, at scale, then you're going to have a lot of churn. And that long tail of shippers that might ship one shipment a week or two a month or, you know, five a month, right? Uh, those low-volume shippers um, will churn quite a bit on you, and it's hard to scale up 
all those customers because basically your your cost of customer your CAC right mm -hmm. customer acquisition costs are, are going to be high for very low volumes. So it's it's really the the key. Absolutely. Okay. So we let's move on. So last week we had a big discussion on WeWork, right, and the whole negative unit economics and how that's fed over. You've seen a lot of a lot of companies this week. Um, you know, um, the high growth names that are burning cash have sold off, even on good earnings reports. You've seen names like Roku. You've seen names like Wayfair, which we're going to discuss. Um, but one one thing I had an interesting chart here. It's not so much not being profitable. So I looked at a report by Goldman Sachs. And one thing that's very interesting here that I wanted to get your take on is actually the very best performing stocks in the market are IPOs that are growing very fast, better, uh, greater than 40% sales growth, and that are actually unprofitable. But here's the key. They turn profitable in year two or year three. And if that happens, you see massive outperformance from these IPOs. So that's one thing that the media is maybe not uh, appreciating here. It's okay to be unprofitable. You just have to have that path to profitability and the market really loves it when you cross over that inflection point to profitability. They do. They, they love it. They reward it. And you can tell from the earnings calls so far in the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, some of those unprofitable companies have now outlined uh, goals for profitability in the next two years. Uh, so, so basically it's not growth at all costs anymore. It is all about how to grow while becoming profitable. And that is now the new fad or trend in certainly public companies, but I think in, in all the venture capital world for maturing venture capital companies. Yeah, that's one thing I always found so uh, interesting and fascinating about the public market. Feedback can be instantaneous and vicious, and it can flip on a dime where they tell you you're going to change your business model overnight. And if you don't, then either your management team's going to be gone or we're going to dump your stock. And we're seeing a lot of that. Uh, we, we are, and probably, probably it will grow a little bit louder as we go on. And as you, you tell me all the time is that once you go public, you're going to get an investor churn. So the v your original VC investors will be selling out, and you might grab some, some value investors along the way, mm -hmm. and also um, some... Uh, activist investors too, right? So you have some activists in there, some value investors, uh, some cash flow investors, and that uh, that remakes the, the entire corporate strategy. Yeah, that, that is one thing. So every company, when they go through their lifestyle, uh, life cycle, excuse me, um, you know, early on, you've got either the year private X and you go public, and then you usually go public at a high growth rate, right? And a similar... It's changing a little bit these days, but generally at a small size, about a hundred million, and, and then you've got those growth investors in there early on, and then as the company matures and that growth rate slows, but you start to produce more cash flow, positive gap earnings, the value investors take over, and then when things really mature or slow down, you know that you get taken private again, where things get restructured or the activists, and this is just a life cycle that just repeats over and over again. But those shareholder transitions can be because you, when you're turning over that shareholder base, and I think that's one of the things we're seeing here, you have to find a whole new base. Yeah, definitely. And it, it, as you said, it is painful. And a, a lot of the uh, the tech startups that have gone public in the last 12 months are feeling a lot of that pain. Peloton was another one. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw an article, I think it was yesterday or the day before, 
where the the CEO was uh, was scratching his the quote was scratching his head because he doesn't think uh, the public investors really know how to value Peloton, but they are valuing it from uh, more of a cash flow, more of a profitability or a road to profitability uh, type of uh, of situation rather than high growth. Uh, yeah, and I sort of get his argument. I mean, they are they have a really nice gross margin structures, um, and I think they're growing. I think I heard the number was about 100% year over year. So I sort of understand a little bit of his frustrations there, where at least what divide, the dividing line is if you've got nice gross margins like a SaaS company, right, uh, they're not quite there. I think they're more at like 50% rather than 80%. But yeah, everything 50%. below that in the operating expense line, that's really within your control. So you can sort of turn that up or turn that down just depending on how fast you want to grow. And, and at that price, you're pricing in all the growth, all the new products that are on the bubble that might be introduced in the future. That's already baked into the cake in a lot of these stock prices uh, of high growth companies. So what are you left with? You're left with uh, it's for your investment to pay off as a public investor that everything has to be executed to the T, 100% of that growth that's baked in has to appear in the next few years. And as we both know, that's hard for any company to pull off. That's absolutely true. Okay, so now the other angle, Wayfair was down 30% uh, last week. Just, I would just, there's, this one has a lot of tie-ins to transportation. So moving furniture. So a lot of times uh, Wayfair does a retailer. Uh, they build out similar to Shopify or Amazon. They'll do your online furniture for you. Wayfair, uh, I think if I recall correctly, the online furniture market, it's enormous. And it's like 110 or 100. Better than, G- growing. better than GDP. Wayfair has taken their sales from when they IPO'd in 2013, a, a billion in sales to about six or seven billion now. Um, but a lot of their business model involves transportation, particularly They've got about a 25% gross margin, and they're they're spending a lot on advertising as well. But what are your thoughts as far as, you know, does this business model work of buying furniture online? Because it's really hard to return. Does this work? And, and it has all the elements of the last mile in there as well, right? What do you, what do you think about the transportation challenges facing a business model like that? Uh, there's, there's a lot, right? Because e-commerce and final mile is growing so rapidly and evolving so much uh, day by day that it's hard to even keep track of. Uh, but whenever you're delivering appliances or furniture, uh, you're going across the door. Uh, drivers are having to, to come in and install or, or, or place that couch uh, where it needs to be. So there's the customer service angle. There is uh, the, the timing angle of deliveries. And I think it's, it's really challenging, uh, especially finding the talent that, that can drive, that can move furniture, and that can be have a smile on their face and be very presentable to every customer. Now, one of the things you always like to tell us, some stories about your time as a you like to make uh, distinguish between good freight and bad freight. Right. There, yes. and, and I've always being new to the industry, I always find this hilarious. So is furniture good freight or bad freight? And uh, it, it can be good. You, you can charge a very good premium to it. So as far as that goes, it, it's, it's good. It's very specialized. You have to a lot of times you have to have blanket haulers is what they call them. Blanket haulers mm-hmm. that, that have blankets that can protect the furniture. Um, 
So on the over over the road side, it can be really good. It's, it's challenging to, to find carriers that specialize in that. So it really is. It's good freight when you can get it. When you have the carrier network, not the number of carriers, right, but the actual carriers you can pick up the phone and, and call or, or or match that are on the app. You know, every day. I mean, that's that's what it really comes down to. Uh, once you've developed that network, it can be a very profitable business. It's much better than say paper goods or um, you know, uh, you know, you know, so paper goods, lumber is, is not always the, the, the greatest freight. Uh, the worst thing I ever brokered was, uh, uh, wet cow hides, uh, out of Kansas city and, uh, talk about challenging to, to get anyone to come by and pick that up. Yeah. That was the smell, right? Yeah. So very much so. Okay. So. Um, yeah, but I think that'll be Wayfair's an interesting example because by far the majority of the cost and burden for e-commerce comes in that very last mile, right? That's the most challenging. Yeah, time. and I, I would have to think that, that furniture, I'm not a final mile expert by any means, but I have to think that, that furniture, appliances, those large um, large items that are basically the fastest growing part of e-commerce, it's got to be expensive to, to deliver and our customers really going to pay that expense that to have uh, someone come by and unload a couch or table yeah, and chairs they, and or, in this or, case or they don't. They, it's free shipping over forty nine dollars. In case they don't, and so that Wayfair is footing that bill, so they basically need enough scale uh, to be able to bridge back on uh, carriers and final mile. Do you think they can get enough leverage to actually make it economical? You know, I don't know. I, I do think that they're, uh, that's that's why one reason I wanted to talk about this with you. It's yeah. a fascinating topic that has some tie-in. I, I think it's too early to tell. Tell They've got a lot of sales growth. You know, I think that they've done a good job of, uh, you know, a lot of times firm members talking to other truck drivers, right? they're not uh, digital savvy. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of benefiting from that. If you've got a furniture retailer in North Carolina, they're good at making furniture. They're not good at running I do think mm-hmm. there is a fit for them to be that number one provider. In that. And what I do know about furniture is it's very high margin. I mean, it was a 70, 80% margin sometimes on, on furniture. Not for them. They only have about a 25% margin, maybe on the wholesale for the actual shirt. That yeah. may be true. So is Wayfair paying the, the, or the, the shipping bill? Yeah. Over yeah. 49, they'll ship it anything to you. Yep. So um, um, we will move on from that. So the last thing, Kevin, let's do our long and short segment. Um, I've got two. This is the second week here, but we've got two questions. We're going to wrap it up here. Um, so first question, and I think we've talked about this. Are you long any company in any industry, but particularly transportation, with negative gross margin uh, being the successful? I am short that. And the, the main reason why I'm short that is that I come from the value investing school of stocks and you know you have your technicians you have the growth guys i i'm i'm value i'm a value deep value guy i like to buy 50 or a dollar for 50 cents and uh anyone with negative gross margins is just too much of a risk for me um i thought i had a feeling you were going to say that (laughs) but i i did you know i did come up with two examples of companies that are very prominent both spotify and netflix had negative gross margins and you know, the funny enough thing is Spotify's CFO, Barry McCarthy, he actually just retired, but he oversaw Netflix from that transition from deeply negative to nice and positive about 10 years. So nice. Um, okay. So this one is really topical. Um, so deep, did you know that the best performing uh, sector in the stock market, hands down, over the last month is industrials? 
and they are up about 10% over the past month. And inside of industrials, you have about a 30, about a 33% weighting to freight and logistics, I calculated, right? Okay. And so we, we constructed our own proprietary uh, trucking stock, uh, truckload, LTL. Yeah, the freight, so the freight waves truckload index. Correct. Now, these things were up huge this week. They were up uh, 5% on the truckload side, 8% LTL, and 7% in logistics all this week. So it's what's clear to me here is the market is starting to discount prospects for accelerating and better growth in 2020 mostly because of Fed rate cuts and a trade deal out there. So the question is, are you long or short industrials and transportation uh, and transportation stocks uh, into 2020 on the hopes of a trade deal? and a close? I am. I, I am on both of those. I, I'm long transportation logistics uh, and not all for a trade deal or, uh, or industrial recovery. It is more that we are at the bottom of a trucking cycle and how long that will last. I have no clue, but we, I think you you see it with the stock market action in, in transportation and trucking, especially is that no matter what bad news or bad earning reports that come out, uh, the stocks keep going higher because this is, this is the trough and the trough could last for a year. Who knows? Uh, I, I think it's maybe three to six months. Uh, but at, at the final, you know, the, the, the final phase is that this is a trough and I, I don't see it going much lower unless there's a recession. And then I guess it could go, go lower than this, but I would be, a, I, I'm bullish on the, the truckload sector and, and stocks right now. I would agree with that. I think maybe we're a little bit too far too fast. We're going to see a near term pullback. But, uh, one thing I was reading this morning was, um, Bascom majors at Susquehanna. He talked about the fact that. You know, interestingly, uh, contract rate and trucking turned negative two or three months ago, and they're starting to see a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. But the stocks typically bottom in transportation when those contract rates go negative, and then two or three quarters later, they're off like mm-hmm. a rocket ship. Yeah, the, the, the contract rates coming down negative year-over-year growth is a signal. A lagging. It's a lagging. In, it's, it's a signal that that that's the bottom of the cycle. And you wrote a, a great paper. It was more on the freight broker side and how gross revenue and, and margins react to an uptick in spot rates that pull contracts up and then a drop in spot rates that start pulling contracts down. And it's a textbook example uh, of this right here. You described it perfectly well in your, your, your white paper. Yeah, so all the Sonar subscribers can check that out under the research section. We have freight brokers across the cycle. I mean, the main takeaways there were early on in the cycle, you don't typically want to own freight brokers, and we're kind of seeing that right now because you have volume weakness at the same time that contract rates are being negotiated uh, negotiated aggressively lower, and you've got spot bottoming out and coming up a little bit, which squeezes your muscle. So those are more of late cycle. Exactly right. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in to Great Quarter, guys, this week. Uh, we are, are going to be back next week. We've got Freight Waves Live, uh, the best conference in all of transportation. Uh, Kevin will be up there, but I will have another guest host on. Uh, in the meantime, you can find our podcast um, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or you can download Freightcast, which is all, I believe, is seven uh, Freight Waves podcasts yeah. all in one. Um, so thank you very much, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye.